Why choose a Sleep Number smart bed? Because no two people sleep the same. Only the Sleep Number smart bed lets you each choose your individual firmness and comfort your Sleep Number setting. The Climate 360 smart bed is so smart, it actively cools or warms up to 13 degrees on either side for your ideal sleep temperature. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number special edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. On today's episode, we are celebrating the best of year one of the Parentologist podcast by compiling seven clips of our most downloaded episodes. Hello, and welcome to the Parentologist podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kim. The Parentologist Podcast is a show about everything parenting with a therapeutic twist. I have a doctorate in psychology and am a licensed marriage and family therapist, a registered play therapist, university professor, writer, and mom of two. Each episode of the Parentologist Podcast focuses on a variety of topics related to parenting, family, children, and mental health. I'm glad you're here. First up, let's talk about sex. I interviewed Dr. Morgan on how to spice up your sex life and grow more intimately with your partner. She also answers the question of how much sex you should be having per week and who holds the most sexual power in the relationship. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to spend this time with you. I am too. And I know we're going to be talking about kind of a hot topic. <laughs> um, <laughs> There's a pun in there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it's Sexual Health Awareness Month. And I really want to talk about sex and ways couples can increase their sexual intimacy. Mm-hmm. So let's just go ahead and dive right in because I know people who are listening to this episode probably want to get right to it. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to come out with a big one. Um, I'm going to come up with a big question to start us off with. In your opinion, how often should couples be having sex? <laughs> that is a big one. Right there. <laughs> uh, so this is funny. So I've done a sex series. I do series on my Instagram, which you know, but um, I've done the sex series maybe three or four times now. And this, whenever I post a question box, this is the one that gets asked asked the most. How often should we be having sex? And the answer is so unsatisfying because there's not really a specific number in there. If you look at uh, research on the average amount of sex couples have, it's something like, I think it's like 1.6 times a week. Okay. Um, Here's the answer though. The answer to how much sex you should be having is really specific to the couple. It's really about what works for a couple. There are couples where 1.6 times, whatever (laughs) 1.6 is, um, is like, that's too much for us. You know, we don't, we're not that, you know, sexual. We're just not, we don't have high desire. um, And we're both good with it. Sometimes I talked with a couple, um, she's, she, she's funny. She actually does content about wife stuff, but, um, they have sex every day and that works for them. I think that the answer really lies in, um, are both of you okay with it? That's really the the measure. Are both of you okay with the amount of sex you're having? Because where problems start to creep in is when one person is wanting more or less sex than you're actually having in the relationship. And that discrepancy is where problems start to develop. Right. Right. And I think you've talked about that. I've seen some content that you've shared about the power dynamic in the relationship. Mm -hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that the person who 
doesn't maybe want to have sex as much as the person who's more in control. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's whenever I post this, I always get kind of a mixed response to this, but, um, the person with the higher desire, the person who's kind of in the mood more often is usually looking for permission, uh, from the person who has a lower desire, kind of looking for that green light. And because they're sort of always, I mean, and I'm, I'm drawing like pretty sweeping generalizations here. So there's nuance to all of this stuff, but the person who's more in the mood more often is kind of like, you know, when you're ready, I'm here. Like I'm, I'm there for this. And so they're waiting for the other person to kind of come around or they're waiting for that signal that they're, it's okay to approach, um, or for like that kind of extra hint of warmth that suggests they might be in the mood. And so there is a lot of power for the person who has the lower desire because they sort of hold all the cards in terms of the sexual relationship. And it can be a really vulnerable position for the person who has the higher desire, especially if the lower desire person doesn't say yes very often. Right. And it depends on how this is looking in your relationship, but I suggest that if this has become an issue, it can be helpful for the person with the lower desire to actually kind of keep track of their yeses and their noes. Uh, because if sex is not something on their radar, they're just probably not even aware of how much they're saying no. Right. And uh, so it can be helpful to just keep track, pay attention. Your goal is to say, and this is uh, maybe I need to have a disclaimer. This is assuming you're in a relatively healthy relationship, that there's consent, you know, all of these, all of these important things. Um, but your goal is really to, to kind of have a better balance of your yeses and nos. Ideally you want to say yes more than you say no. And that I think is like a lot of people would look at me cross-eyed for saying that. Um, but it's really about understanding that the sexual relationship is an important part of the relationship. It's not something separate. It's not, you know, oh, it's just this primal need that somebody can live without. And I'm meeting all of your needs in these other ways. And so deal with it. That's one thing you're not getting. No, sex, sex has a powerful impact on your connection and your closeness and your relationship. And we need to think of it as, as something that's relational and um, put it in the context of the other aspects of our relationship. Yes, I, I completely agree. And also as a mom of, of two little ones and uh, you know, a mom with a lot on her plate with her own work and different things, I know that I'll speak for myself as a parent, I get very tired. I get very stressed. Um, mm-hmm. You know, by the end of the day, I'm exhausted. Not to say you always have to have sex at night, but, you know, it's it's hard. So, you know, what are maybe some tips that you have for other parents out there that, um, that are just exhausted by the end of the day, um, but they also want to make sex a priority in their relationship or make their partner a priority, priority in their relationship? Um, what can you suggest for ways that they can start getting more connected with that and making, yeah. making that a priority? So I think this is a common thing, especially for um, couples um, kind of like making that transition into parenthood and couples with young kids is that it's just kind of that physical intensity when you have young kids that really zaps you in, in different ways. And so, um, I think that, <laughs> I think it's important to understand how 
desire works. So I'll probably start, I'm going to start there with my answer. Well, first, let me say one thing. Something that's important to to understand about the sexual relationship is is how, when it comes to kids, is how relationship satisfaction changes after kids. And so then I'll make, I'll bring this all full circle. Um, after kids enter the picture, a lot of times relationship satisfaction goes down. And um, this is way more nuanced than that simple statement. There's ways that other parts of our life satisfaction and meaning in life goes up and all of these things. Um, but when you look at, if we're looking at heterosexual couples, men and women, the reason why it goes down for, for women is a loss of freedom and an increase in their responsibilities, which we all feel if you're a mom. Yep. Uh Big time. You feel a big time. And with men, though, it's a worry about providing, but then changes in the sexual relationship. And so these might sound like dramatically different things, but I think that it's it all relates to one another. So... Let's talk about sexual desire. There's, um, you know, used to talk about sex in terms of drive. Do you have a high drive or a low drive? You know, kind of this like dichotomy. Um, but now we understand it's it's something called the dual control model of sexual response, which simply is we have breaks, um, things that hit our kind of like t- that turn us off, right? Right. And then we have accelerators, things that turn us on, things that kind of do it for us. And then we have different levels of sensitivity of each and then different combinations. So if I have a low break, not a lot turns me off and I have a high accelerator, everything turns me on, I'm pretty much always good to go, right? So, so it's important to understand your own accelerators and brakes as well as talk about this with your partner and get to know theirs. Now, enter kids. <laughs> for women, um, um, for women by and large, it's most important to pay attention to things that hit the brakes. The brakes can really interfere with your desire more than your accelerator. Now, what hits our brakes? Stress, to-do lists, uh, overwhelming mental load, um, worrying about things that we didn't get done, worrying about if we're a good enough mother. Um, all of these things hit the brakes. Right. And even if we're hitting the accelerators, like, oh, we uh, had a date or we, you know, for me, it's like, just put on some stinking cologne. Like my husband doesn't even realize how easy this is, right? Put on the cologne. Like what? even if we're hitting the accelerators, if our brakes are just like, on the floor, they're just being smashed down. It's going to be hard to be in the mood. And I think that couples need to understand this um, so that they can do something about it. And what they need to do about it is help one another remove the brakes. The next clip is from my Valentine's Day love episode with Caitlin Stamos, mom and wife of John Stamos. Here's a clip of her sharing the most romantic proposal story you have ever heard from the deemed sexiest man alive. Do you get engaged at Disneyland or no? Am I yes. Oh, that's a fun story too. I love it. Okay. Share that real quick because I, I did remember, I think I saw that somewhere that you got engaged at Disneyland. So Yes, it was the most romantic uh, I felt bad for it because, you know, there's a lot of proposals at Disneyland and there was actually even some that day later I saw it and oh, I just funny. kind of felt bad for anyone who was planning a proposal at Disneyland oh, no. afterwards because it really, the bar was ridiculously high there. Uh, he managed to, so yes, I'm a Disney fanatic. And in that week, I had, the week that we were going, I had already gone like two or three times. 
<laughs> and he was so funny. He was like, well, you don't have to go again with me. Like we can go another time. You've been so much this week. I'm like, no, it's totally different with you. We're, we're going to go together too. I, I mean, there's no, there's no right. too much of Disneyland in a week. Of course. But he was really trying to play it off like, ah, it's no big deal. But then we get there. We decided to get a hotel too because you know, I was pregnant and kind of tired and we would have little breaks throughout the day and maybe stay the night if we wanted to stay late and not have to drive home. And they gave us this little itty bitty room and John was like kind of being a dick about it. Like, oh my God. like sort of being rude, like, oh my God, this room is terrible. And I was so embarrassed. I'm like, <laughs> like all these, you know, these Disney people around. I'm like, thank you. Thank you so much room. This is so nice. And he was being kind of rude. Right. What, what right. is going on right now? So unlike you. <laughs> and then, uh, and then it's time to go to the park. We went to DCA and you saying you wanted to go to the animation big building if anyone yep. hasn't been there it's this beautiful big air-conditioned space and we went on a particularly hot day in october this is midday and i kept saying this the place is gonna be packed like it's gonna be so full you don't want to go in there you're gonna be mobbed <laughs> like well, yeah, let's do some other stuff first he's like no i really want to go there so anyway we eventually work our way over there and it's been roped off to the public and we oh. walked right in and that's when i went oh he's gonna propose now i didn't say anything <laughs> so i want to ruin it <laughs> But I had a feeling at that point, oh, I think I know what's coming. So we so walked funny. into the building and uh, everyone there is playing it off really nicely. <laughs> Going, oh, you know, that we're having an issue with the screens. That's why no one's in here right now. But if you just sit tight here, uh, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get everything up and running in a minute. And then and there's all these different like movie screens, basically, all around the room if you haven't seen it before. And on a normal day... They have uh, just snippets of, of Disney films and a lot of just a the pictures of early animation drawings of, of them. And it's really a beautiful place to hang out. And they play the music. And it's like a big karaoke room for me, really. I sing the whole time. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> But this particular day, the screens were down. And every once in a while, like there would be a little bit of a, a blip of something on one screen. And then the wrong music over here. And then... Slowly but surely, all the screens start playing one video, and that one video is all of the meet cutes and romantic moments throughout all Disney films, all Disney animated films, uh, edited together, ending with uh, uh, the song "Kiss the Girl" and an animation of Sebastian telling to John, telling John to ask the girl. Oh, how and so funny. then he got down on his knee and asked me to marry him, and I cried, and I was wearing fake lashes, and they fell off, <laughs> <laughs> and it was beautiful. And uh, yeah, crying and, and smiling. And then uh, we asked to play the whole thing again. Of course. And then I was like, oh, well, that's great. Thinking like, hey, let's go on rides now. And he goes, oh, this isn't over yet. And I was like, what? There's okay. more? <laughs> yes, there's more. <laughs> and uh, we were ushered over to Disneyland from California Adventure and uh, onto the train in the, the special car in the back where oh, uh, the caboose, where there's, they had a little bride and groom ears and we were off to the New Orleans corner, quarter, and I was thinking, oh, maybe, maybe we'll have lunch at Club 33 or something, which is the special uh, members-only club, the restaurant. One day that, uh, there. <laughs> yeah, super exclusive, fancy, yeah. would have been like, that would have been more than sure. enough <laughs> of sure. celebration. But we walked past there, and I thought, I have no idea what's going on now, because right. we went past the entrance, and we went to the entrance of 21 Royal. Okay. Which, if anyone does not know what 21 Royal is, it is a an apartment above the Pirates of the Caribbean that was originally intended to be for the Disney family. Unfortunately, Walt Disney passed away before its completion, and it became a few other things before they did finally turn it into Walt's dream of being a beautiful two-bedroom 
apartment with uh, a couple of patios and it's just it's a fantastic thing you should look it up online (laughs) and now they do these uh fancy dinners there and uh so we we went up there and i'm like in shock crying again because it's amazing it's my dream to be able to see this apartment it's um as a a massive disney fan it was uh it's on the, the checklist of things to check out oh sure so i go up there and our friend our family both of our families are there to surprise us with a little engagement party. And we ended up uh, having the privilege of spending the night there. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, and, uh, and so that's why he was kind of being a tool before to throw me off the scent of doing something special in the right. park. <laughs> and so, yeah, and that's a very rare thing to do. They don't let, like, anyone – I don't think no, – no one can do that anymore. It was a, it was a very – a very special thing. And yeah. – uh, and, uh, and I'll remember that forever. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah. So that was just the best proposal ever to exist. Oh, yeah. The bar was set very high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Caitlin, this episode is all about love. And I feel like that was just, you know, the definition of love. Your engagement story is just absolutely beautiful. So <laughs> <laughs> over the top. I love it. I love it. It's, but it's just, I mean, what a wonderful memory, you know. In this next clip, we hear from Dr. Z on narcissistic relationship abuse. We learn the red flags to be aware of and what to do if we find ourselves in this kind of relationship. You could share some more characteristics of someone who is narcissistic and, and yes, how that shows up in relationships. Sure. So I think one of the reasons why it flies under the radar, other than there not being visible bruises or you know something that's that's obvious to the outside world, is that the abuse is extremely calculated in these types of relationships, whether it's, as you said, you know, a mother-daughter, father-son, a friend, a significant other. Uh, it's very kind of uh, – it, it's almost hidden because the way they present to the outside world is going to be very different than the way they present to the person that they're in the relationship with. Right. Uh, and so one of the reasons also why it flies under the radar is it's very common – for regardless of the relationship type, it's very common for the non-narcissistic partner or non-narcissistic person in the relationship to not even be aware mm. that the abuse is even occurring because it's so strategic and it's done in such a way that the person, the non-narcissistic partner feels that they're always wrong, that they truly are made to think that their reality, their perception of situations is wrong. So the idea that they're being abused is is not even on their radar. So they're, it's almost like there's nothing to report. Hmm. Um, yeah. So it, 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 it's very... Um, it's interesting because when I will work... When I work... I, so I'm sure we'll talk about this, but I usually see the partners or the ch- the adult children of the narcissistic um, person. So it, uh, one of the things that happens oftentimes is they'll come in for relationship difficulties, right? And through therapy, you know, I'll realize, you know, this is we're dealing with someone who's a narcissistic partner or a narcissistic parent, um, and start to highlight the abuse strategies and the consequences of it and kind of bring it to the surface because a lot of times they they don't know that it's abuse they look at it more as just they're depressed they're anxious they don't feel good they have low self-esteem mm-hmm. um, and then through therapy they realize there's there's a reason for that <laughs> right right and, and and that's the thing I feel like you know when I've heard 
friends or clients um, or anyone of the sort, you know, talk about something in this category, it's, um, you know, you hear comments like, well, my partner just says, or my parent just says um, that I'm just too sensitive yes. or that or you know, you're crazy or, you know, yeah, exactly. You're, yeah. you're overreacting. Um, yeah. yeah. Very, it's very common. It's called, you know, it's called gaslighting. So you asked, you had asked about, you know, um, characteristics of someone who is a, who has narcissistic personality disorder. Um, and it's usually, as I describe it kind of to, to everyday people who are in these relationships, it's typically somebody who will have no problem presenting one way to the outside world, but yet to their partner or their child or whomever, um, they present as you know extremely manipulative, um, very strategic in their manipulation. So there's different kind of, there's a cycle of abuse that usually happens and kind of rotates around. So in the beginning, in I'll use dating for an example, but then in the beginning, they tend to move very quickly. Um, they come on very strong and it's not just like, oh, I met someone and I love them. They're so great. And, you know, they're spending every day with me. It's different. It's this, you're my soulmate before they mm -hmm. even know your middle name. I've been waiting for you my entire life. They're giving you gifts and they're calling you every day. And usually they will gravitate towards somebody, let's say, who's not used to getting that type of attention or who feels really bad about themselves or doesn't have a solid sense of who they are or, you know, self-esteem. And so they've, they've never gotten this attention before. And I, who can blame them for loving this, right? So a lot right. of times in the beginning, they don't even know that this is a, a stage, a, a strategy in the abuse cycle. So they, they come on very strong and they, you know, confess their undying love and this is the best thing ever. And so then once the partner is kind of sucked into this, then you have this devaluation stage that occurs, which is there starts to be these kind of, and it comes on very, it's very subtle. And, and so the way I describe it is it's, it's kind of like you get into these relationships and every so often there's like a bar that's put up around you that you don't even realize. And then before you know it, 20 years later, you're in this like cage and you can't get out and you don't know how you got there and you don't know how it happens, but you're there. It's very right. subtle. Um, and so it's very – so they suck you in kind of and then what happens is they'll start to, for no reason whatsoever, give you the silent treatment mm. just to make you think you did something wrong. And so, you know, and it, kind of they hijack your emotions. So a lot of times people say they're very controlling and they are, but they're controlling of your emotions. They want to have access to your emotions and this way they can kind of control you through through that. There's also financial abuse. So you'll hear a lot of times mostly with women, they weren't allowed to work and they were it was dictated what they were going to buy, how they were going to buy it and it makes it very difficult to leave. Right. Because a lot of the women um they don't have any job, they don't have anywhere to go, they don't have any finances because also they isolate you from family and friends. You know, I don't really like your sister. There's something I don't just there's something about her I don't trust or, you know, your best friend from college. I don't I don't know. There's something weird about her. And you start to they start to isolate you so that you can't talk to them about the abuse. So they can't talk to you about the abuse. Right. Oh, that's scary. It's very scary. That's and very. Yeah. It's very intermittent reinforcements, meaning you kind of never know what you're going to get. You're walking on eggshells. One day, 
you could cook them dinner and they're like, this is wonderful. I love this. And then the next day you cook them the same dinner and they take the plate and throw it against the wall and storm out and say, you're horrible, terrible. So you never know what you're going to get. So you're in that intermittent reinforcement schedule, which is one of the most difficult patterns to break. Next, we have a clip from our bullying episode with Ashley Eckstein, most known as the voice of Ahsoka Tano from the Clone Wars Star Wars movies. She shares her personal story of being bullied as a child, as well as being cyberbullied as an adult. I think as adults, we have a responsibility because we, we wonder, like, oh, why are our kids dealing with bullying? But I think we have to look at our, inside our own homes mm-hmm. and realize that kids are hearing pretty much everything we're saying. And, you know, it's so easy in private conversation to say something about someone else right. that might be, might not be the most complimentary, um, might be attacking someone's personality or their appearance or, you know, definitely could be considered bullying. And you think that you're in the privacy of your own home. Um, but to a kid, you know, they're hearing all of that. And so then they go to school and they may have the same actions, but where are they learning it from? Right. <laughs> you know, they're, yes. they're, they're, you know, they're learning it from at home and, and, you know, some things that you may think are just innocent and honestly in the privacy of your own home, if there's kids around, I mean, kids are just, they're sponges. And, um, I mean, it's not even so much bullying. I, you know, I've talked with my husband, um, cause I have a bunch of nieces and, you know, um, you know, just even comments about appearance or, you know, healthy body image. And, you know, as adults, things that we think, you know, are no big deal and that, that, you know, just honestly comments that may roll off of our tongue could be very damaging for kids to listen to, um, you know, as they're, as they're growing and learning. And so I, 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 I'm, I'm not really, unfortunately, answering your question because I, I agree with you. I, I really don't have an answer as to, to why it's happening more. And, and maybe that does go back to social media. I mean, I think bullying has become a lot more prevalent mm-hmm. because it's so much easier to hide behind a keyboard or hide behind a screen and say something about someone that you would never in a million years say to their face, but you would have the confidence to say it if you're behind a screen or a keyboard. So, I mean, maybe that's why it's more prevalent. Um, yeah, 100%. But, but yeah. Yeah. It, it is true. You know, gosh, I feel like we can go so many directions right now, but you know, it's interesting, again, going back to some of the trainings that I, you know, to do for bullying, you know, we talked about the bully, the victim and the bystander and how everyone has a role in bullying. And we used to emphasize the bystander role and educating children in schools that if you see bullying, uh, whether you're watching it from afar or you're kind of in the middle of it, you know, a lot of times um, it does happen behind closed doors, especially with a cyberbullying. But sometimes it happens on cyberbullying and the whole class is involved, you know, like lots of people are tagged and, you know, whatnot. But, you know, that the bystander does have a very prominent, powerful role in in bullying. And if they do see it, 
you know, to, to stand up and they have to do it right to that, you know, if it happens in person or even online, you know, they don't have to put themselves out there necessarily because I know that can be pretty scary for kids to do sometimes. But, you know, like you said, privately going to a teacher or a yard duty or the principal or someone or even their own parents at home and saying, you know, this is what I witnessed today. This is what I saw can you support me, you know, going back to school and telling my teacher or whatever it is. So they stay protected as well. And, you know, we had this whole situation in teaching, you know, tattling versus telling. And, you know, tattling is when you're specifically trying to get someone in trouble. Telling is, you know, keeping someone safe. And, um, you know, so I, I just want to put it out there just, you know, to when it talks to, about support, you know, that even the bystander has support and has and has a role in it. And, you know, I, I sometimes wish it happened more than it does, um, you know, for people to to stand up and say this is not right. And that's what I love about you. Um, I love that you do a mental health Mondays, um, you know, on Instagram. And I, I've seen your work um, with your Instagram lives and things like that uh, was part of one of one. Um, I know. I know. Thank you for being a guest on a recent mental health Monday. Yes, I was honored. Um, but I love that you because, you know, as you know, um, you know, bullying can have such a, a detrimental effect on mental health, mental well-being. You know, there's obviously many stories out there that we've heard over the years of how some bullying has led to even suicide and, you know, depression, anxiety, you know, all sorts of things, um, self-image. And um, it, it just can be, like you said, um, devastating, heartbreaking and devastating for children and adults. In this next clip, I talk with Dr. Pooja about the mental load of motherhood as well as how to prevent being a mom martyr. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, and, you know, as you know, we're, we're both in the mental health field. Um, so I want to start a little bit just talking about that and, and what you suggest to your patients um, and other moms um, who are coping with the mental overload of motherhood. Um, and, and then, you know, building upon how moms can develop positive coping mechanisms around stress. Yeah, absolutely. So the, you know, the mental load is something that, that you talk about, that we hear all about, uh, these days on social media, but I think what's really lacking from the conversation so far is yes, but what do we actually do? How, how do we fix this problem? And, you know, in my practice, I take care of, of women. Um, my practice is 100% women, um, the majority of whom are also mothers. And what I've seen is that motherhood, and then the evidence supports this, that once you become a mother, your mental load increases tremendously. And right. I, the way that I describe it with my patients is that the mental load is essentially it's you're the CEO of the household. You're not only the CEO, but you're also the admin assistant. You're mm -hmm. the HR department. You're the marketing department. Oh yeah. <laughs> Your craft you're services. <laughs> right. <laughs> you're everything. Um, and so I like to, as a psychiatrist, you know, as a physician, I like to think about this in terms of the brain. I think it's helpful to visualize so when you're constantly stuck in the mental load, the parts of the brain that are firing most frequently are what we call the prefrontal cortex. So those are the areas of the brain that do planning and strategizing and 
making complex decisions. So in other words, um, executive function. So it's kind of, it's your CEO brain, right? Right. But then there's all of these other parts of the brain that have you feel emotions and sensations. And what I see with moms who are overburdened by the mental load is that they feel like they're managing their family and they're not actually part of the family. Um, like, like you're kind of the director of operations, but you don't actually have the luxury of being able to participate in any of the things that are happening. And so, so the, this, the solution for kind of disconnecting from the mental load is twofold. One, trying to activate those sensory parts of your brain, doing anything that you can that will take you out of your to-do list and the problem solving that's constantly going on and whether it's like making a cup of tea or going for a walk or even something like yoga. And I know that those, you know, it it can be easy for that to sound like just platitudes, you know, like, well, just go for a walk. And, you know, like, I I don't have time to go for a walk. And I'm like, I don't have time to go for a walk. (laughs) You really have to force yourself. And um, so that comes to the second part of bearing the mental load, which is that you really have to learn to delegate, to delegate and communicate with your support system and start to be comfortable asking for help. And, and I know we're going to talk more in detail about this of like what gets in the way and, and what has mom's, fall into that martyr mode trap. And, and, you know, the last thing I'll just say is that I know how hard this is. Like this is, this is not easy. And the reason that it's so hard, and I talk about this in my writing is that our social structures are not set up to support families or women. You know, we've just lived right. through two and a half years of a pandemic where, you know, where, where people don't have childcare, right. You know, it's impossible to get off a wait list or to, to find childcare or, you know, all these different things. So it's, you know, just constantly remembering that, that it's not your fault that you constantly feel bogged down by the mental load. Yes. And, and I, you know, with being a mom of two, uh, a working mom of two. I mean, all moms work, right? I mean, um, just different different levels, different capacities, um, <clears throat> in different ways. But you know, my gosh, it really hit me hard when you said about being the CEO and managing, but not actually being part of the family. That like just, I mean, I, I <laughs> I'm still trying to process that because I'm thinking, wow, that's me. Um, that's how it feels sometimes that. I'm doing, doing, doing so much for my, my, my family and, you know, organizing everything. But then when it actually comes time to actually enjoy my family or enjoy my children, it's almost like I can't shut my brain off because I'm still, like you said, in kind of that, that planning mode, um, organizing mode, and it's, it's hard to shut it off. Um, so I like what you said about forcing yourself sometimes to take a break, um, asking for help. We're going to talk more about that, like you said. Um, and sometimes it's, even if you have to do it begrudgingly, it's it's almost like a necessity and it's critical to do it um, to to be able to cope with the stress that comes with all of the things that that mothers have to deal with. So um, I, I love that. And like you said, it doesn't have to be too much either. It can be something real simple like making a cup of tea, 
you know, um, you know, cause like you said, going to, you know, people talk about self-care and I think when people talk about self-care, they think about going to a spa for the day or getting a pedicure and spending hours, you know, pampering themselves. And, you know, what I tell my clients is that sometimes it could just be a cup of tea or even having a, a, a bite of dark chocolate, you know, that you sneak in the pantry when your kids aren't looking. Cause of course, if you, if they see you, they're going to want some too. And you don't want to share in that moment. It's your time. <laughs> right. Um, so. Absolutely. And, and I love that you mentioned self-care because I actually, I have a book that's coming out next year. So, so I'll be coming back to talk about that, but yeah, you know, kind of like what you said, like the tyranny of self-care, right? Like we have made it this burden or not we, you know, corporations, media, wellness companies have made it this burden to sell to us. Yes. When in fact, it, we can reclaim ownership over what it means to do self-care. So that's another conversation, but I think it's it's kind of related to all of this. And, um, Absolutely. and mothers, you know, really feel that burden. In this next clip, we learn from Dr. Jen on perfectionism. She shares how it correlates with high-functioning anxiety, how perfectionism can be passed on to our children, and how we can reset our values and priorities. Dr. Jen, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited about this conversation. I am too. I am too. And if we weren't such good friends, we met through Instagram, <laughs> if anyone um, wants to know. And I would I would probably hire you to be my therapist because I, <laughs> I personally struggle so much with perfectionism and I've learned so much from you. And so that's why I wanted you to be here today to you know share your wealth of knowledge with listeners because um, you know, I think just, you know, perfection has kind of always been part of my life, you know, and mm -hmm. I'll, I can go into that a little bit later, but um, uh, of just, you know, wanting to not necessarily be the best, but to, to show others that I'm worthy. That was kind of my, yes. my, my thing, you know? So, um, but I think now, you know, in my personal opinion, you can, you know, share, shed more light on this as we go, but just with social media and things like Pinterest and even Instagram and seeing people's highlights and what the perfect par birthday party looks like and this and that, especially being a mom with so much comparison and competition out there, it's just, uh, I think even more so than it ever has been. So I'm just, I can't wait to dig in. <laughs> I talk about this since I know you specialize in this. And like I said, I, I follow you on Instagram and I, I read what you say about perfectionism and I definitely know I, I, I have it and I want um, for myself and for other listeners out there that also struggle with that um, to help, you know, what we can do to try and maintain it. Because, you know, one of my things I want to ask you later on is, you know, how perfection perfectionism can be passed on um, as a mother to our yes. children. All right, so let's go ahead and get started. I have heard you say that the root of perfectionism is the desire to be accepted. Will you go into a little more detail about that? Absolutely. And so, you know, some people can beat themselves up for developing perfectionism, for having this, you know, real driving force that might take more of their time and more of their lives than they'd like to. But really, at the heart of it, it comes from a very innocent place. You know, it, it, perfectionism can often develop when we are quite young. And we're looking for approval of parents, teachers, friends. You know, we know from evolutionary psychology that humans are social and pack animals. And it was necessary for our survival for us to be accepted as part of the group, part of the tribe in order to thrive. And so when you think about how our brain works, our brain is very attuned to whether or not the people around us accept us, love us, care for us, will take care of us. 
And perfectionists tend to be very sensitive to cues from other people. And so we'll be very attuned to whether or not other people think highly of us. Mm-hmm. And so we, we obviously don't have control about what other people think about us. But what we can do is give more, be selfless, work harder, do everything, quote unquote, perfectly in an attempt to assure that we're going to be accepted. Wow. Well, that's basically me in a nutshell. Thank you. (laughs) It's all of us, right? (laughs) Well, where does that, where does that come from? Is it nature? Is it nurture? Like what are some either personality characteristics of someone who might develop perfectionism or like you said, does it come more from the acceptance of maybe even young childhood of being accepted by peers and and their parents and whatnot? Where, where does the kind of the root of it come from? Absolutely. So we, we obviously know that some folks are, you know, a bit predisposed to this, you know, perfectionism often shows up in folks who might have a touch of anxiety, especially what we call high functioning anxiety. Um, So anxiety that we might not view from the outside as problematic, we might just view it as high achievement. So we can be sort of biologically pre-wired for that in our brains. But if you look at society in general, and this speaks so well to what you're saying before about social media and how, how all of this has become more prevalent, is that perfectionism gets reinforced, Mm. you know, over and over again, you know, if you're in middle school and you stay up till two in the morning, you know, working on some poster board, and then you win the science fair, your brain says, oh, that worked. Right. Let me do that again. You know, and and the same thing if we stay up late making organic, you know, nut-free cupcakes for our kid, and, you know, the teacher is impressed that we did it from scratch rather than stopping at Safeway on the morning of, right. then all of a sudden we get this gold star, which all of us you know, seek on some level, but with perfectionism, it's when the gold star really starts getting in the way of other things that matter. Right, right. That's a really good point. And you brought up anxiety, and I want to dig into that just a little bit more, in, in more specifically high-functioning anxiety. Um, you know, I, I'm curious what... Um, what about the anxious person turns it into the anxiety turns into perfectionism? How does that happen? Sure. So, you know, anxiety is, is rooted in, you know, fear of things going wrong. And so most people with anxiety have some sort of way of seeking reassurance or seeking control in situations. Now, we know we can't actually be reassured all the time and we can't actually control things all the time. But where we often see, you know, regular, you know, functioning and trying to do well, trying to do our best in life kind of edge into perfectionism is when we are working so hard to try and make sure that nothing goes wrong, that we never, you know, have an off day with our spouse or off day with our children, that, you know, we never do anything imperfectly at work. We're trying to insulate ourselves from any kind of discomfort of imperfection. And that's where you see sort of perfectionism and anxiety really dovetail with each other. Wow. Yeah. No, I I definitely can see that, you know, and, and, you know, I know, like I said, I, I, I've struggled with that. But, you know, probably definitely dates back probably till childhood, you know, which right <laughs> now, but, you know, I've, I personally have always struggled with that, you know, and I've always kind of played mm-hmm. it off as, oh yeah, I'm a type A personality and I'm, you know, I'm mm-hmm. a perfectionist and, you know, I had to, you know, do something of, you know, with 500 takes to get the right one to make sure it looks good on, you know, social media or mm-hmm. whatever, like you said, a, a homework assignment or whatnot. And, you know, I, I definitely have struggled with that. And, you know, there's sometimes I'm, I'm aware of it, 
you know, so that's good. I have the awareness yeah. that it's there. And like I said, sometimes I play it off like, oh, that's just me, you know, ha ha. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, which probably isn't a good thing. And you can explain maybe more why. But mm-hmm. other times I, I have this awareness and I think I sometimes don't want to be that way. And it, it just comes yeah. so naturally to me. And I feel like I'm always on like, um, you know, some sort of hamster wheel or, you know, this rat race that I'm continuing to like do more and strive for more and it's not good enough and this and that. So I know something that you've mentioned um, about a treadmill and you can go into more of that mm-hmm. um, about what that is and maybe how we can step off of it. <laughs> and how that's okay. Sure. Sure. Well, and, and before I start talking about the treadmill, one thing that you, you said really, really resonates with, with something you see with perfectionists and, and, and how you spoke about it just is so genuine because it can be part of our personality to do our best and try and take care of those around us and be good at our jobs and all that. The difference in when it, when it tips into sort of problematic perfectionism is when we start doing that and we don't feel like we have a choice. Mm. When we feel like we can't go to bed because we're still perfecting the work project. When we feel like we can't let our kids, you know, get messy and play in the dirt because we're worried about what the pictures will look like later that day. It's that absence of choice is usually a sign that the kind of anxiety is getting to us to the point where it really would be helpful to get a few resources and get some help around it. Right. Um, what you're referring to that I often talk about is something that uh, in psychology we call the hedonic treadmill. And what that means is that when often humans think, oh, you know, when I get this next thing, so when I get this job promotion, you know, when I have this, you know, second child, when I get this raise, when I get this new car, when I get this house, then I will be happy. Right. And what we know, and and a friend of mine actually did a beautiful study on this. Um, what we know is that external events actually don't do that much for an individual's state of well-being or happiness. Hmm. So a friend of mine was in an accident and she became um, paralyzed from it. And she ended up in a wheelchair and she did this beautiful study where she compared folks who were in accidents and ended up paralyzed mm-hmm. to folks who won the lottery. And what she found was that while the folks who were in accidents and ended up in wheelchairs were you know, fundamentally less satisfied with their life for a brief period afterwards, and the folks who won the lottery were much happier with their life for a brief period afterwards both groups actually reset to their baseline of what happened before the event, positive or negative, after several months. Hmm. Interesting. So it's really internal work. And most of us, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you've experienced this. I certainly have. We think the next job or the next you know, achievement or the gold star or the house of the car is going to do it. And then we get there and we don't actually enjoy it. We just have the next goal come up. That's the next level up. Right. And that comes that, uh, that continual thriving for more, or even thinking the grass is going to be greener. So I know you've talked about a lot in your work, which I I love, and I'd love to have you go in a little more detail about it is talking about values and priorities. You know, how do we, how do we reset, you know, how do we reset that, that strive for thriving and, you know, for more of that perfectionism to, going back to those, the values and priorities to maybe, you know, stop that um, cycle from continuing. Absolutely. So this is my favorite thing to talk about because it's so effective across all these different areas of psychological challenges. But going back to what matters to us, our values and the kind of life that we actually want to build. 
So many of us perfectionists who are very used to working very hard to get the thing done. I think every single person who went to grad school is a little too good at delayed gratification, for instance. (laughs) I just think that's in all of our blood. We kind of had to be. Um, But one thing that we realize is usually underneath our thought of, oh, the car, oh, the house, or oh, the job promotion, or oh, the baby, there's some kind of understood, then I will be able to relax. Right. You know, then I can take the foot off the gas, then I will have quote unquote made it. Right. And what I always ask my clients, and, and this comes up a bit in the, um, in the perfectionism course too, is, you know, what would that look like if you had that? What do you picture to be different about your life if you felt satisfied? Hmm. And then people say, oh, I'd spend more time with my family. Oh, I'd go to the beach and I'd read a book. Oh, I wouldn't, you know, worry about getting guac when I was at Chipotle, you know, right. like little, little tiny things that happen throughout our lives. And then we start to really question, wait, you know, do I have to be keep grinding, 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 pushing, pushing, pushing to get these things that I want in my life? Or can I start spending more time with my family now? Can I start, you know, taking a day off every once in a while when, while my kids are in school just to relax and enjoy and maybe have lunch with a friend without a screaming kid next to me? Right. <laughs> you know, and, and, and so when we stop using achievement as our North Star, but we start using quality of life as our North Star, many times we actually discover that we are much closer to the goals that we have in life than we realize. In this last clip, I still get chills when I listen to my favorite musical artist, Tristan Prettyman, singer, songwriter, and mom, sing one of her most popular songs called Say Anything acoustically on the show. She also shares what she's growing in her garden, how she grounds herself, and takes care of herself therapeutically. Did I see that you've been taking up some gardening as well? I do love to garden. I'm so very amateur. I kill a lot of plants. Um, I'm it's survival of the fittest over here. Uh, <laughs> but I do love to garden. I have a pretty big. Um, I have several gardening like raised beds, and then I have a lot of like. I don't know. I'm like I'm going to get this. I, you know, I go to the gardening store, and I'm like. I'm going to get this plant. And the guy's like, those are like really sad looking like you might want to wait till Tuesday to come <laughs> get the new delivery. And I'm like, no, these I'm, it's like, I do this with the Christmas tree too. I go on the last day and I'm like, give me the saddest tree. I want to give him a chance. You know, he's going to make it through. So I like to pick out all the, the sad, like the sad plants and like plant them and see what happens. Um, so I have like drag, you know, I have dragon fruit, passion fruit, figs. Um, I have bananas right now, which is pretty cool. Oh, wow blackberries. Um, I have some kale. It's getting attacked by caterpillars, but it's, oh no. it's like a whole learning process. And that's very therapeutic as well. Um, yes. garden. Like I just want to be outside. I'm, I'm all about just less trying to get off my phone, less social media. I mean, I have a, definitely have a love and hate with social media and more time outside with my hands in the dirt. Cause all of that is also building our immune system and our our, um, our microbiome. And I'm just, I'm just about doing all of the things that like build immunity, our resilience, strengthen us, put us in our bodies, all that stuff. Yeah, I hundred percent agree. And it is, it's very therapeutic. It's very grounding. Um, I love gardening with my kids. I mean, we, you know, it's, we live in a, an environment that we, you know, have 
warm, sunny weather most of the year, you know, so, you know, having, having an opportunity to do that, you know, where we live is, is, is really great, but the kids love it too. I mean, my kids absolutely love, you know, to get their hands dirty, obviously, and to plant stuff and then to see it grow. They get so excited if it's a seed, something from a seed and they see like the first little sprout, they, they think it's fascinating to them. Totally. Yeah. Great, great, great activity to do with kids. I think we planted some carrots, you know, and it was like for, for like, 16 weeks straight, Kyle's like, is the, is the carrot ready to pull? Well, not, not yet. Like everybody, you know, he just wants to pull the carrot. So. Oh, they love it. They love it. It's so fun. All right. Well, I know we're almost out of time. So um, two more quick questions and then uh, I'll let you go. And again, I'm sure we'll, we'll have more things to talk about another time, but um, you had two singles come out um, this year, Waste My Time and Same Page. Um, I know you talked about a song you just wrote earlier, but do you have any other singles coming out soon that you'd be able to share with us um, or any other uh, upcoming music uh, releases? Um, I'm always working on music, slow and steady. Um, I have two songs that I'm sitting on right now, and I'm guessing that if those come out, it'll probably be in in the in the new year. Um, the goal was to do some kind of EP or record with, um, fuel to my fire, same page, waste my time. Uh, and I think letting go and then writing a, a couple other songs to kind of round out that album. So I've tuned the two that I'm sitting on right now. And then, um, and then a couple others that I'm working on, but it's a slow process. It's like, sure. It's literally like every couple weeks or you know, I work on it little by little. Um, but the cool thing is I have a, a, my friend of mine, um, moved to Colorado and gave me one of his pianos. And so I've actually been kind of teaching myself piano. Um, nice. so the last three songs have all been on piano, which is really neat. So it kind of feels like I'm discovering music all over again. Yeah. That's um, awesome. Yeah. So some, there's always, there's always stuff on the horizon, you know, oh, and then I have the dream for the, for the kids record too. So Oh, I love that. Well, good. Well, I will be looking forward to that. If you have just a few minutes, would you um, want to play a little something for us today? Sure. Oh, I'd love that. I'll let you, you pick. I'll let you pick if you if you have something you'd like to play or, I mean, say anything is always going to be my first choice if you ask me, but <laughs> it's your choice what you like to do. I'll do say anything. Okay. All right. I love that. I'll do the say anything. I love okay. this one. If I could say anything, anything, what would it be? Take a step. Oh, gosh. Hold on. We got to start over. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll edit that part out. <laughs> I get all nervous. It's like I haven't played in so long. Okay. I know. This is what happens. I started, I started thinking about it too much, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. Is her, she loves a song. Okay. Oh, no, no, no. You're good. You're good. <laughs> all right. Here we go. One, two, three, four. If 
I could say anything, anything, what would it be? Good question for a distant reality. I would tell you that I love you, even when it didn't show. I would tell you that I love you, baby. By now, I hope you know. If you could go anywhere, anywhere, what would you see? Take a step in any direction, make believe. If your mind is always moving, start to get your heart up off the ground. Yeah, your mind was always moving, or your thoughts never made a sound. But we won't break if we let go. You and I already know we were bound to be so free, eventually. So here we are now. You can say anything. If I could ever go anywhere, anyway, it'd go like this. Take it back to a couple years yesterday, to our first kiss, and that moment I loved you. This is now I ever saw going down, and that moment I loved you. I wish I knew then what I know now. We won't break if we let go. You and I already know we were bound to be set free eventually. So here we are now. You can say anything. You can say anything. Oh, well, you should listen to your heart. It's gonna tell you what you need. Take care of yourself. Don't you worry about me. Oh, well, you should listen to your heart. Oh, it's gonna tell you what you need. Take care of yourself. Don't you worry about me. And we won't break if we let go. You and I already know we were bound to be set free eventually. So here we are now. You can say anything. You can say anything. You can say anything. You can say anything. Always say anything. Wow! Thank you so much, Tristan. That was absolutely beautiful. 
thanks for having me on your podcast. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for being here. We will definitely have to make a date to get together in soon in person. I would absolutely love that. And yes. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for joining us today. I can't wait to have you back for more. Make sure to subscribe to the Parentologist podcast so you don't miss an episode and make sure to tell your friends. This podcast is not intended to be a replacement for therapy. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call 911.